Previously on Mafia. In the outlawed days of Sin City, Tony Spilatro was trusted to enforce the law of the Chicago outfit that owned the Las Vegas casinos. There was a, uh, a place that was consumed by avarice and greed. Well, my initial re uh, remark was, is this really part of the United States? <laughs> uh, this, this had an entirely different uh, approach because uh, organized crime is what brought the gambling industry to Las Vegas. He was known as a man who would kill without hesitation, shown early in his life when he disposed of men who had carried out an unsanctioned hit in Mafia territory. He was an embarrassment. He was a loose cannon. Uh, all doubts have to be resolved in favor of the mob. It's possible he could say something that would, would hurt somebody. Spilatro also organized his own operation of loan sharking, street muggings, and burglaries. The corrupt Las Vegas police were easily paid off, at least until 1978, when a new sheriff was elected with a promise to end the influence of organized crime. When the indictments started to come down, you knew that it wouldn't be long before Tony's reign would end. This is Mafia. Things were about to get tough for the Mafia in Las Vegas. Sheriff John McCarthy took command of the police department and put Kent Clifford, a young officer, in charge of the Metro Police Intelligence Bureau. Clifford was determined to restore the integrity of the police force and rid Las Vegas of organized crime completely. And he was after one man in particular, Tony Spilatro. But Spilatro had other troubles. He was being investigated by a grand jury in Washington, D.C. Vegas crook Jerry Listener had confessed to the FBI about his dealings with Spilatro and Spilatro's lifelong friend, Frank Collada. In Spilatro's world, there was only one way to deal with rats like Listener extermination. He made sure the hit was authorized by Chicago before sending Collada to take care of it. But the hit didn't go smoothly. Unable to get a silencer, Collada decided to use half-charge ammunition to keep the noise level down. But the half-charge bullets had little impact and Listener was still moving, trying desperately to get away. Dennis Arnoldi is a former FBI special agent. Frank Collada told me he shot Lisner, yes. And tried to strangle him and I think stab him too. I mean, they, they were having a difficult time uh, dispatching Mr. Lisner. Collada caught up with him, put a pillow over his face, and emptied a second clip into Lisner's head. Jerry Lisner's body was found in his swimming pool. And while it may have been a messy hit, it did the trick. Spilatro and Collata remained free men. Meanwhile, at the Las Vegas police force, newly promoted Commander Clifford was ready to turn the screw on Spilatro. Our plan was, we're going to give him some notoriety. We're going to arrest his people every chance we get, whether it's for traffic ticket 
or anything. We're going to cause them pain. We couldn't play by their rules. We couldn't go out and just shoot them and get it over with. We had to play by our rules, okay? So we sat down and said, okay, what rules do we have? We have traffic laws. We have laws against burglary, larceny, blackmail. We said, what crimes are they committing? So we listed all those. Okay, who are the players? Who is Tony Spilatro's people? We identified all of them. Okay. We identified where they lived, what kind of cars they drove, uh, everything we could find out about them. So then we implemented our plan. Clifford wanted to get under Spilatro's skin and force him to make a mistake. He would make sure his officers were there when Spilatro or any of his crew stepped out of line. When they got up in the morning, we followed them. When they made a left-hand turn and didn't signal, we called a uniformed cop and had them arrested and had the car towed. Then they had to bail out. That cost them money. That cost them at least $1,500. They had to go get their car out of Hawk. That cost them another $1,500. And it cost them inconvenience. And it made them mad. When they was mad, they couldn't think right. Well, the end goal was we was going to put them all in jail. That was our goal. Everybody goes to jail for whatever length of time they have to. We're going to interdict. We're going to destroy his organization. They would get mad, and then they would... Uh, make mistakes and that was our goal that they would make a mistake that we would watch and see and be able to catch them at. And Spilatro finally did make a mistake. A very big mistake. After the police killed a mob associate, Spilatro lost his temper. He rashly issued a contract to kill the two officers involved. When Commander Clifford found out, he stormed off to Chicago to confront Spilatro's outfit bosses, but not out of fear. The reason I went to Chicago, I knew that the Chicago bosses had never authorized a hit on a police officer. It was unheard of. They would never do that. So when I went to Chicago, I wanted to tell them Tony Spilatro's story. I want to tell him what he did. So I did. When they got the word, that caused Tony Spilatro grief. Former FBI Special Agent Leonie J. Flossi. Organized crime has a rule, uh, an unwritten rule, that they do not seek retribution against law enforcement. Because if they do, then a great deal more pressure and attention is going to be brought upon them. Clifford told Spilatro's bosses that if they broke the rules and came after his men, he would break his own rules and go after their children and spouses. If they kill my cops, I'm coming back out to Chicago with 40 men. I'm going to kill everything that moves, walks, or crawls around their house. Do you understand what I'm saying? The prospect of being hunted down by rogue police appalled the outfit's leaders. They ordered Spilatro to cancel the hit. Spilatro was now in deep trouble not only had he failed to ask permission for a hit, but he'd put his boss's wives and children in mortal danger. 
And Spilatro had further rocked the boat by creating a rift in his relationship with Frank Lefty Rosenthal, the owner of many Las Vegas casinos, most notably the Stardust. He had engaged in a public affair with Rosenthal's wife, Jerry. As a result, Spilatro was blacklisted from many of the casinos he had been sent to enforce. Spilatro was starting to crack. He demanded to meet with Clifford face to face. We got nose to nose, Tony Spilatro and me. He said, you went to Chicago and told him you got 400, you got 40 men. Well, I want you to know we got 400. I looked him in the eye and said, that makes us even, doesn't it? He said, what? I said, yeah, any one of my men are worth 10 of yours. My men are trained. They're cool-headed. They have weapons. They can shoot them. They know what they're doing. Yours don't. Yours are stupid. And he backed up. He said, well, you said you was going to kill me. I said, I didn't say I was going to kill you. I said I was going to put you in prison, and I am. The Las Vegas police were now making themselves a real threat to the mob, and the Las Vegas FBI were about to get tough, too. The director in Washington sent legendary agent Joe Leblonsky to head up the Las Vegas office. I had a knack and, uh, for developing prosecutive cases as a street agent. And uh, so I had a, a pretty good record from the standpoint of, of uh, doing uh, prosecutive cases. And apparently they were unhappy with the prior agent in charge before me. And uh, as the director said to me, I hope you can stimulate some activity. And I do believe uh, those words were met. Joe Leblonsky was a famously aggressive investigator and successful prosecutor who had been working for the FBI since 1952. And he was about to whip the law enforcement of Sin City into shape. It was a, uh, a place that was consumed by avarice and greed. Well, my initial re uh, remark was, is this really part of the United States? <laughs> it was a, uh, I mean, having dealt with organized crime types and hustlers and uh, different uh, criminal types, uh, this, this had an entirely different uh, approach because uh, organized crime is what brought the gambling industry to Las Vegas. Joe Yablonski made a great statement. He said that uh, uh, when he came here, he realized that he had to replant the American flag. It was a, it was a shock to see uh, the openness. I mean, there was prostitution. Uh, I mean, the mob was taking monies out of these casinos. Uh, it wasn't like it was benefiting uh, anybody in the United States. It was only benefit, benefiting the pockets of uh, the people that were running the mobs back in the Midwest. Until now, the Metro Police and the FBI didn't cooperate. But they realized that their only chance at jailing Spilatro would require them actively working together. Kent Clifford. So I went to lunch with Yablonski, and we talked about everything. 
There was no sacred cows. We talked about everything. He pledged cooperation. I pledged cooperation. I said, now, let's, me and you, introduce our men to each other. So his men and my men got together out on the street and introduced themselves to each other. We had to earn their trust. Then we had an open line of communication. I've always had fairly close working relationships with, with other law enforcement people, but never like I did with the Metropolitan Police Department when McCarthy took over. I mean, it was very important to, be, to have the uh, uh, cooperation of the Metro Police Department. Uh, I mean, they, they lived and grew up here. They had more uh, informants on the street. Uh, you, needed, you needed their assistance. You couldn't operate without it. When we got working together, then we coordinated our attack. We met with the FBI daily, and they gave, told us what they were doing, and we told them what we were doing. We shared informants. There wasn't anything we didn't share or we didn't try to cooperate with in our goal to rid the community of Tony Spilatro. Cooperation between the FBI and the Metro Police at that time when I got here was terrific. It was the first time in my bureau career, uh, which at that time was over 10 years, that I had ever worked that closely with a law enforcement or a local law enforcement agency. It worked in Las Vegas because the FBI and the Metropolitan Police Department were the same mind that it was now time to take decisive action against these people, uh, action that was going to accomplish something. Gradually, cooperation brought results. Slowly, we were putting our puzzle together. Who the players were, what they were doing, how they was doing it, what hours of operation they worked, uh, who their girlfriends were, etc., etc. We knew everything about them except the color of their socks. We had a sense that we was circling the wagons, that we were bringing it in. We knew we had Tony Spilatro. It was just a matter of time. Spilatro, in turn, didn't make it easy for them. He turned his headquarters, the Gold Rush Jewelry Store, into a secure fortress. Guns were kept under the counter. Men with binoculars were stationed on the roof as lookouts. He even had his own electronic surveillance and counterintelligence operation. But there was a weakness in his system. The FBI had an informant, Salvatore Romano, the gang's alarms expert. Romano told the FBI about Spilatro's plan for the burglary of Bertha's antiques and jewelry store. The heist would yield more than a million dollars worth of goods. Romano had even videotaped their planning meetings with a camera hidden in a loudspeaker. If the police and the FBI could catch the gang red-handed, Tony Spilatro was finished. The raid was set for July 4, 1981. Spilatro's idea was that the fireworks celebrations would cover the noise of the gang breaking into Bertha's. But police officers and FBI agents were waiting for them. So we understood they was going to uh, go through the roof on the Berthas. So we were in concert with the FBI. We surveilled it. I was with Yablonsky, and all my men had teamed up with an FBI agent. We watched it as it went down. 
We had people inside. We had people outside. So we had to sit up there. We were videotaping them when they showed up and they'd carry their acetylene torches and tanks and uh, climbing up and uh, uh, getting ready to do their, uh, uh, their burglary. And as soon as the gang broke in, the agents and officers pounced. It was a magnificent uh, uh, operation, I can tell you. Uh, as you can imagine, on the 4th of July, uh, I had to put some units in early in the days because members of the Hole in the Wall gang would, would go by berths and do a, take a look. Uh, so we had to be as discreet as possible. Um, I had to put some uh, agents in a van. You're sitting on the street in a car. You got other people up on the roof uh, waiting for the night to come to cool down. But even on July 4th, I was up o over the hundreds. The gratification you got, well, as far as I was concerned, was I was uh, directing the operation. I observed this vehicle pull in across the street and it turned out it was uh, uh, Joe Blasco and uh, uh, he gets out of his car and he goes in the back of the, of the van but to see him show up there as part of that operation probably gave me some of the greatest joy in the world I knew now we, we had him and then uh, uh, to be able to take him down that night uh, brought a lot of joy not only to me, but to Metro, uh, their own people. Among those arrested that night were crew boss Frank Collada and disgraced ex-cop Joe Blasco. It was a major coup for the FBI and the Metro Police Department. I was, I was there at the time. It all went down. I went over to Bertha's. At the time, they had everybody under arrest. But we had Joe Blasco. He was our former police officer. And, and I let him know how satisfied I was that I got to put him in prison. The one person they didn't arrest that night was Tony Spilatro. But if they could connect Spilatro in any way to the burglary, he would face trial with his crew. Dennis Arnoldi. We knew very well at the time that he was running the show. Now we had gotten his, his team during that, uh, doing exactly what we expected them to do, committing a burglary. We knew that he, they worked for Tony. So absolutely it was significant at the time, tremendously significant, because it draw, drew him right in to a uh, major crime. So it didn't matter whether he was there or not, we were going to get him, we were going to arrest him. Spilatro was badly shaken by the arrests. He was afraid members of the gang would squeal and give up not only his role in the robbery, but that Jerry Listener had been killed on his orders. Spilatro panicked and issued an unauthorized contract on the man who knew the most, his childhood friend, Frank Collata. We got word that Tony Spilatro had put a contract on him because he was suspect of becoming a witness, which uh, he wasn't. And so we had to tell him that, that it was a contract on him, at which time he decided to come along with us uh, and, and, and be debriefed and be a witness. 
but uh, interestingly, the uh, the fact that uh, these people uh, have a contract put on them because they're in trouble uh, has has eroded uh, many of these organizations because. If you tell a guy that there's a contract on him and he says, oh, they want to kill me? Okay, I'll cooperate. So uh, it's, it's uh, violated one of the standard practices of organized crime, which is the word omerta. Omerta meaning silence. If you get caught in a criminal act, omerta is supposed to be utilized. And by putting a contract on a guy because he gets into trouble, the guy says, oh, they want to kill me? So I'll become uh, a source. Until this point, Frank Collada had been following the mafia code of omerta, silence. But Spilatro had left him no choice, and now he turned informant. The debriefing and protection of Frank Collada was assigned to FBI agent Dennis Arnoldi. Certainly Frank Collada was scared with Tony Spilatro lying due to Frank Collada after the arrest of Bertha, certainly. And once we told him that there was a hit on him, uh, it was well-founded uh, fear. By trying to kill his friend, Spilatro had sealed his own fate. During debrief, Collada revealed that it was Tony Spilatro who had committed the unsolved m M&M murders in 1962. Spilatro was arrested in Las Vegas. The notorious mobster had finally been taken into custody. On October 24, 1983, Spilatro was put on trial in Chicago for the double murder of Billy McCarthy and Jimmy Maraglia, 21 years earlier. The FBI seemed to have Spilatro on the ropes at last, but Tony persuaded his lawyer to agree to a tactic almost unheard of in a murder case. He waived his right to trial by jury. Judge Thomas J. Maloney alone would hand out the verdict and sentencing. And in the end, the judge decided not to accept Collada's statements as reliable evidence, and Spilatro was acquitted. It was rumored that some judges were still tied to the mob, and Judge Maloney would later be convicted of obstruction of justice for taking bribes. Spilatro had escaped yet another murder charge, but this time he wouldn't get far. Law enforcement was finally ready for an all-out assault, and he was hit with a triple whammy of charges. The FBI had painstakingly uncovered the mob's multi-million dollar casino skimming racket. And in the autumn of 1983, Spilatro, along with 14 underworld figures, was charged with fraud. Based on Collada's testimony, Spilatro and 17 others were charged with armed robbery and extortion. And Collada testified to what Spilatro had feared most— he admitted to Agent Arnoldi that he had pulled the trigger and killed Jerry Listener, but on Spilatro's orders. Yes, Frank Collada told me he was acting under the orders of Tony Spilatro to kill Jerry Listener. 
when the indictment started to come down, you knew that it wouldn't be long before Tony's reign would end. Spilatro faced sentences that totaled up to 85 years in prison. Crime author Thomas Repetto. He was an embarrassment. He was a loose cannon. Uh, All doubts have to be resolved in favor of the mob. It's possible he could say something that would, would hurt somebody. Apparently, he was back in Chicago. Apparently, the mob was keeping a close eye on his movements. There was one figure would call him every day just to sort of wish him well, in other words, to see where he was. The Chicago Mafia bosses hated the idea that anyone might squeal, let alone someone who knew as much as Spilatro. Two days before the -the hole-in-the-wall gang trial in Las Vegas, the outfit invited Tony Spilatro to return to Chicago. He and his brother Michael were taken to Bensonville, outside Chicago, under the impression that Michael was to be inducted as a made man into the outfit. They were led into a downstairs room. As soon as Spilatro entered the basement, he realized what was about to happen. Tony Spilatro had beaten and tortured many victims in his career. He asked if he might say a prayer. Now he was forced to watch as his younger brother was beaten to death in front of him. And Tony knew that he was next. The bodies were found eight days later on a farm in the neighboring state of Indiana, clad only in underwear. The Las Vegas Metro and the FBI didn't lose any sleep over his gruesome end. When Tony Spilatro was killed, uh, I certainly was not saddened by the event. As a matter of fact, I felt that finally justice had prevailed, even though it wasn't at the hands of the court and prosecutors and law enforcement as it should have been. It was at the hands of his own uh, people that he uh, had been associated with his whole lifetime. Tony and Michael Spilatro's battered bodies were buried one on top of the other. The forensic pathologist's report recorded blunt trauma to face, neck, and chest by fists or feet. The brothers were unrecognizable. Identifying them was only possible with dental charts. Tony Spilatro was dead at the age of 48. The last unsolved murder of his career was his own. Well, that's a better sentence than the government could give him. Uh, to have him uh, killed uh, in that way. But, you know, this is so commonplace in organized crime and these kinds of investigations. You run into this routinely. They kill each other uh, because they're thieves. And even though they're supposed to have honor among thieves, they don't. They cross each other. Uh, They start looking after themselves. uh, And for one reason or another, uh, they get killed. And this is a pattern that has existed since time immemorial with with organized crime. Tony Spilatro's death marked the end of an era in Sin City. The landmark cooperation between the police and the FBI changed not just the face, but the heart of Las Vegas. Soon the mob's golden age of control over the casinos came to an end. There was a unification of local law enforcement, state law enforcement, 
federal law enforcement where they got together and basically kicked the mob out of Las Vegas for good. I can tell you today, it does not exist here. Our goal was to put Tony Spilatro and all these thugs in prison for life. That's what we wanted to do. That was our goal. In the end results, because they died, the, our culture, our society was better off. So I did not feel bad about any of them. Frank Collada went into witness protection for some years. The former hole-in-the-wall gang leader is now back on the streets of Las Vegas, serving as a guide and telling mob stories about the Mafia's heyday in Sin City. In the next episode, Joseph Big Joey Massino was a legendary godfather of the Bonanno crime family and the last of a generation. Joe Massino was considered the last Don because he was really the last of the old guard. But when the family was infiltrated by the legendary undercover agent Donnie Brasco, it poisoned the whole family. The, uh, the, the family was uh, basically in chaos. Uh, the other four families uh, treated the Bonanos like they were radioactive. Um, and uh, uh, it caused a lot of um, re ripple effect throughout the organized crime uh, scene in New York. It was thought that the FBI had finally succeeded. But his high status and violent reputation meant it wouldn't be easy to bring down Joe Massino. No one would talk to us about Joe Messina because they feared him. He was feared absolutely because he was a violent man and his reputation preceded him. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Ben Hosley and Rachel Jacobs and Bettina Vasquez for World Media Rights. We had editing help from David Markowitz with additional production from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabingo. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Netflix's original show Ozark and Framebridge for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And if you've got some time, give us a review.